Working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everyone, welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta. Today I'm going back to Canada. Two weeks ago I shared my interview with Brandon Goodwin, who's based in Montreal, and this week I'm bringing you my conversation with Adam Bowman of the Toronto area. Adam tours and records with a variety of artists. Currently, Elise Legros is keeping him busy, and he has been the go-to for a number of Juno-winning artists, which is basically Canada's Grammy, uh, including Carlos Morgan and Kelly Lee Evans. He is also active in the dance world, playing drums and percussion for dance productions and classes at Dance Theatre David Earl. We want to thank everyone who donated to the podcast during our May donation drive. We raised a good chunk of money that will help us with podcast expenses. Uh, the winners of the raffle prizes were announced on Facebook and Instagram, so go check those out on our pages if you want. Once again, big thanks to everyone who donated and to Vader, Aquarian, Crush, Session Ace, and author Jake Brown for providing some great prizes. As always, you can find us at WorkingDrummer.net, where you can check out past episodes and learn more about who we are and what we're about. You can also follow us on social media and share pics and videos of your gigs on Instagram using the hashtag WorkingDrummer to get reposted. Lastly, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher, and your ratings and reviews on those platforms are very helpful. These days, in-ear monitors are almost required equipment for working drummers. Problem is, a lot of them don't sound very good, and the ones that do are really expensive. Session Ace solves both of these problems with high-quality dual-driver ears for $99 and quad drivers for only $199. Using a hybrid design combining armature and dynamic drivers, the frequency response is as good or better than anything you'll find up to $1,000. And the accessory package that comes with every pair includes cable extensions, quarter-inch adapters, and a huge variety of ear tips so you're sure to get the right fit and feel. Matt and I have been using these ears for a few months now, putting them through the paces both live and in the studio, and I'd recommend them to any pro musician who needs full, clear sound in their ears but doesn't have a grand just laying around. I'd even recommend them to the cats who do have a grand laying around. Truthfully, I've put off buying ears for a long time, and these saved me from having to drop a ton of money or getting stuck with bad sound. Visit sessionace.com slash working drummer to check them out, along with the other tools and accessories Sessionace offers. Once again, that's sessionace.com slash working drummer. So I really dug this talk with Adam. He's a really thoughtful and insightful dude about many things, especially uh, when it comes to applying non-musical concepts from dance or martial arts or wherever to his drumming and accessing the emotional aspect of performing music. A quick note about this interview, uh, we have bonus content available on our website for those who donate to the podcast, that bonus content being our guests listing their top five records. Once in a while, I choose to just leave that conversation in the body of the interview, and this is one such occasion. Uh, Adam's list led us to a whole other cool talk about uh, how we think about the music that means the most to us and why. So here we go, back to Canada with Adam Bowman. Well, right now, kind of the the projects that keep me the busiest are um, 
with a singer-songwriter from Toronto named Elise Legro, mm-hmm. and she's just released a new record called Playing Chess, and um, it's a real interesting album. It's a, a whole bunch of reimaginings of songs from the classic chess records catalog, hmm. um, and she's um, yeah, she's done some really nice work on there, some great arrangements, um, songs like uh, You Never Can Tell, uh, Chuck Berry, uh-huh. like the, the classic Pulp Fiction right sort right. Of scene right and uh, she's taken that and, and slowed it way down and made it a, a beautiful ballad hmm. um and uh tunes like rescue me fontella bass rescue me right yeah um bass bass fontella bass um she's just stripped away all the uh all the big production you know just taking it way down to sort of its uh, nuts and bolts which is really interesting mm-hmm. you know it's a need to to revisit these tunes and not necessarily try to improve on them because you're just not gonna, right? right. You know, but to try to reimagine them and try to try to find out what else is in there. Um, so Elise keeps me busy, yeah. and um, Alicia Brilla, I've been playing with her for uh, for many years. She released a new record this year as well. Um, Jason Rasso, he's a great uh, fusion bass player from here in Guelph. I live just outside of Toronto in a little city called Guelph. Mm-hmm. Ontario, um, about an hour from Toronto. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Jason is a local guy. Uh, we released a, a live album this year. It's very exciting. Um, and then I also work as an accompanist for a bunch of modern dance organizations as well, training with the with the dancers there. Right, uh, right. And so I work with Dance Theater David Earl and Imagio Artworks and the Guelph Youth Dance Training Program. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also uh, teach at a program called the MAID program here in Guelph. Uh, that's uh, something that I do every year only for a few weeks. We actually do bucket drumming there. Right. That's and your, the funk bucket thing, right? Yeah. And I run the, I run the, that, the, the MAID program is more for, for high school aged students. And then I just thought after a bunch of years of doing that, I thought this is something that adults would love to do as well. So I run uh, on Tuesday nights, I run an adult bucket drumming class. Wow. Well. Yeah. That's so cool. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, I enjoy it. It's it's varied. Um, you know, it ranges from sort of Jason doing the fusion jazz thing, mm-hmm. uh, kind of like Headhunters, Weather Report, Marcus Miller kind mm-hmm. of vibe. Yeah. Uh, to Elise, um, classic soul songs, um, reimagined with sort of a, a a jazz. I always feel like she has like a jazz head and a R and B heart. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, and then with Alicia which is uh, sometimes described as a bit of a, a world fusion um, type of uh, vibe, um, pop influences, world music influences, things like that. And then to be able to work with the dance, the dance company and just uh, see what happens. Uh, I mean, that's a lot of improvised within a form. The, the, the classes are very structured in that they, they have to practice certain um, exercises and certain concepts that are all within a form, but the musician is free to improvise within that form throughout the class. So that's, you know, an hour, an hour and a half of, of improvising on, um, hand percussion and kind of have a little bit of a weird setup with like a bass drum and some hi-hats and a set of congas and a djembe. Uh-huh. And there's like a Roland hand sonic built in there for some melodic elements. And wow. sometimes, sometimes I use the SPDSX to kind of like beat match different samples if that's appropriate. Mm-hmm. Basically you get sort of like just free reign to, 
to improvise within those forms. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we're we're gonna cool. come back to Elise and and all the the other artists you're with, but I, I really want to hear about how you got involved in in this whole dance racket and yeah. and the you know yeah. the, the playing that comes with that, whether it's a class or because I and I know you're involved in like productions like theater shows, right? Yeah. yeah. Um. Um. Yeah, I mean, like anything, I guess, in this sort of journey through a life in music, um, things sometimes just seemingly fall out of the sky and are almost seen as inconsequential in the, in the moment, and they they evolve into something that uh, yeah, it's just it's just so much greater than what it it seems at first glance, mm-hmm. you know. And, so I had just moved to Guelph about 10 years ago, and uh, I got a call from a woman named Janet Johnson, who runs the Guelph Youth Dance Program, and she asked if I'd be interested in playing for some youth dance classes. Hmm. And I was new to town, and I thought, I well, I've never done this before. I was, you know, I, I didn't even, I had never really heard of this before. I feel like people who aren't in that scene aren't even, the concept of playing music for for dance classes, especially percussion. Like, you know, you could, I think people understand that there's probably piano that often accompanies ballet, mm-hmm. but the idea of setting up a whole bunch of percussion, percussion instruments and, and training, um, with dancers and modern dance, I had no idea what the, the concept of modern or contemporary dance was. Um, but, um, I said, sure. Yeah, I'll give it a shot. And as long as you're fine with me kind of doing some on the job training, right, right. um, then I'd love to give it a go. And so I showed up and that was the first time that I showed up at, um, at a studio downtown here in Guelph that also seems to be the hub for, um, what has, has become a lot of really important things in my life, uh, over the, over the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started playing with the youth dancers and then we found out that, uh, dance theater, David Earl, uh, trains there as well. And David was looking for a new accompanist. So I, I, I met him mm-hmm. And, uh, what a, what a fascinating gentleman, um, you know, in his seventies now still teaching, still Mm -hmm. dancing, Yeah, trained with Martha Graham in in New York, um, kind of at the, at the inception of modern dance, really like training with Martha Graham. That's kind of like, that's like playing in Louis Armstrong's band, right? You know, (laughs) you're, you're right at, you're right at ground zero for, for everything, you know, uh, especially in New York at the time he came to Canada, he started the Toronto dance theater. Um, and then he eventually moved to Guelph and brought dance theater, David Earl to Guelph. And he's just a, a fountain of, uh, not just dance, but artistic wisdom and knowledge and noticing and curiosity. And it's just, uh, it's really interesting to be the accompanist in those classes. You really work closely with the teacher who's across the room. So you're, you know, you kind of end up being sort of the sidekick and, uh, right. but you also, you also get a front row seat to all of these, you know, day after day, week after week, year after year, just the knowledge and the wisdom and the, the ideas that are not necessarily specific to dance. Mm-hmm. And he's, it's, you know, it's about the study of any art form is really what he's talking about. Right. Um, and um, in that class uh, was a woman named Georgia Sims. She, she dances with David. Um, she's the, the woman that would, would one day be my wife. <laughs> Nice, yeah. nice. Uh, and she runs uh, Imagio Artworks, mm-hmm. um, and so I also accompany her classes. Um, so you you full on married into the dance world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I definitely <laughs> married. I married in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, 
you know, that part happened many years later. I, I've known Georgia now for um, for a decade, and we just uh, we were we were married last year. Oh, cool. Um, but uh, you know, it's like I said that that one phone call from Janet, seemingly inconsequential at the time. Right. Hey, can you come play some drums for some youth dance classes? Sure, I'll give it a try. You know, spirals into this thing uh, that affects my, you know, David's teachings and his lessons and his thoughts and ideas. They permeate every recording session I do and every tour I'm a part of. And, yeah, uh, yeah. And what what are like, what are some of those thoughts and ideas that uh, that kind of apply oh, to dance and music and and any other art form? Oh man, there's so many. What are some of the What are some of the best ones? Um, well, his whole idea of dance, first of all, is uh, David's sort of definition of dance is that that dance is an emotional response to rhythm mm -hmm. expressed physically. Mm -hmm. And which I thought, okay, cool, I get it. Like I play drums and you dance. Right. And he said, no, 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 no. It's like dance is an emotional response to rhythm expressed physically. And so after years, I realized that the rhythm that he was referring to wasn't necessarily like 16th notes on a conga, uh -huh. you know, for him, rhythm can be, uh, the cycles of cycles of the year, right, right. The sound of rain on a window or, you know, the hum of a fan or, mm -hmm. you know, any type of rhythm, your own heartbeat, whatever, whatever it could be. So that's when I started realizing like, okay, I'm dealing with a very, like this guy's operating on like a different wavelength, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and so that, that was kind of one of the first things that kind of jogged me in the, the direction of being open to those things, even like when we're, when we're playing, when we're recording, you know, coming up with, uh, where do we find rhythms? Where do we find inspirations for grooves? Um, all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. Why do we, um, you know, breaking with convention is also what modern dance is all about. Modern dance is sort of a North American response to ballet. basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and it's not about being a swan or a snowflake or whatever. It's about being like a human being mm -hmm. and sort of tearing off the shoes and letting down your hair and moving like a, a person, like right. a human. Right. And essentially parting with tradition. And so, you know, I think that a lot of that stuff too, with when we, when we're, when we're constructing drum parts or coming up with grooves, how can we, how can we sort of not, not abandon tradition, but how can we look in different directions too, or reexamining them, mm -hmm. you know, moving away from them, um, questioning them um and so that's that's kind of what david's whole uh life and art form is about i, I feel mm -hmm. what it's what i've gathered and it, it makes me re rethink things like you know you're coming up with parts for a record how often as a drummers do we sit down behind the drums and just start banging away eighth notes on a hi-hat right you know just just because just because right right um so just something as simple as that like let's just reimagine like some of the Let's re reimagine some of the go-to things without necessarily moving so far away from it that uh, that we've completely abandoned it. But let's just let's just not go to something necessarily because it's convention. Let's go to something because it's effective. Right. You know. Right. Right. And uh, sorry, I just got back from the TED conference. Yeah, I Vancouver, saw that. Yeah. So, so now my whole my whole head is all about like oh design, <laughs> reimagining things, and like, break all the rules. Break all the rules. Wait, don't break any of them. Make new rules. What are the rules? There are no rules. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, that was kind of my weekend. But uh, yeah, with, da with David, it's not necessarily that he stands at the front of the class and he and he will pontificate on things at length. He'll often just drop one or two sentences um, that are just so uh, so powerful and 
Um, I remember one day he was talking about the difference in posture. Uh, they were sitting on the floor, and uh, some of the people, I guess, in class were just a little too far leaning forward. They were just uh, their gaze was in a certain position, their head was a certain way, and he just said, "He says, you know, when I see that, I, I really get the feeling that you are saying I want." You know, and what he did is he sort of sat back and he sort of lowered his gaze and he relaxed his, his shoulders a little bit. And he says, what I would love to see is I am hmm. as opposed to I want. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so something like that even just, just made me consider when we walk out on stage, when we, when I sit down behind the drums, like what before I've even played a note, when the when the lights come on, before we've started the first song, um, maybe as the singer is coming on the stage or whatever, like what is my... What is my posture even saying about this performance before mm-hmm. I even begin? Am I saying I want? Is like is that what we're on stage to do? Is to to pander, to to want attention, to want recognition, to want is that is that why we play music? Or do as I far want... as I'm concerned, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, you know. Or do you want to go out there with the idea of like I am, and it's a little more centered idea. It's a little right. bit more like rooted, right? You know, especially a drummer. Like man, when you're if you're in a big room playing a, you know, playing a big hall with a large band, say there's a lot of factors that can start to, can start to pull the time and your feel and all of that sort of stuff. Like mm-hmm. you want to sit down with the, with the concept and the feeling and the presence of like I am. Mm-hmm. You know, you're the, you're the mountain in the center of the room that right. focuses the energy. Right. And you won't be moved. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, I mean, it's little things like that, these little, con- so I know that whole com- conversation that David had probably took about 10 seconds in class. And it's the type of thing that sends you home scratching your head, thinking about, oh, how can I apply this to my life? And then, you know, the the ideas and the, the things start trickling in from there. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, we've uh we've talked at length about the the nuances and challenges of playing drums behind singers of various types. Um, but we haven't talked much at all about playing drums behind dancers. Um, so what are, what are some of the, the nuances and challenges that, that you've come across in your, in your years, uh, in this world from the drumming perspective? Yeah. Oh man. Um, <laughs> I, I guess what I've finally, Yeah. There's a great there's a great Bruce Lee quote that I like. Mm-hmm. The other part of my life is martial arts. Oh, so okay. I study, um, the, the same the same room that I came to, where Georgia teaches and where David teaches and where the students train. There's also a gentleman there named Robin Young, who trains kung fu. Hmm. So I've been training with him for the last seven or eight years as well. And um, and, and so and again, if I never would have answered the phone with Janet and gone to that first dance class with the kids, I never would have had these wonderful ideas and never would have met my wife. I never would have started training in martial arts. But um, to answer your question about, you know, nuances of playing behind dancers, mm-hmm. there's this, there's this quote that, that Bruce has where he says, you know, before I studied the martial arts, I thought that a punch was just a punch and a kick was just a kick, you know? Mm-hmm. And then I started studying and I realized that a punch was no longer just a punch and a kick was no longer just a kick. And he says, now that I've studied it, I realized that a punch is just a punch and a kick is just a kick, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, um, so I think that the thing that I realized about playing behind dancers is, um, dancers like musicians are people. Mm-hmm. They're just people. We're just playing with people. And at first I was sort of like, how do I, how do I fit in? What do I do? How do I fill up the space? How do I, you know, 
on and on and on. And then I was kind of thinking like, well, if I was playing with say a bass player, I wouldn't try to fill all the space. Mm. I would try to leave a space for the, for the bass to exist or same with a vocalist. If I was playing behind a vocalist, I would leave space for the, for the lyric, for the melody, for, for the vocalist to determine their own phrasing, things like that. I would accompany Right. Mm -hmm. And so I just realized, well, dancers are just doing the same thing. They just do it in the more visual or physical sense than, say, in in the musical sense. Right. And so space has to be left the same way. Mm -hmm. A conversation has to be had back and forth. Nobody wants to listen to anybody playing music and not listening. A dancer doesn't want to listen to a musician playing and not watching, Mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. And so once I started once I started thinking like, oh, well, these are these are. I'm the only musician in the room, but I'm not the only artist in the room, and I'm certainly not the only creator in the room. Right. And these people are my quote bandmates, mm-hmm. you know. And I'll and I will play, and I will react, and I will respond, and I'll give, and I'll take, and back and forth. And as soon as I did that, um, it just got a, a lot less complicated. Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting uh, that like the notion of of filling space because you know in in a band setting you want to you know you want to leave sonic space for other people mm-hmm. to fill with their sound. Um, but yep. it, like it, what I hear you saying is that in, you know, in, in a dance setting, um, you can, you can leave that sonic space and the, you know, the space that would normally fill be filled by other sound is filled with movement and it still takes yep. up the space in, in that way and, they, and works in concert with your yeah. sound. For sure. And maybe, you know, even further, it's not even about, physical space or sonic space it's perhaps emotional space right it's sort of what what it's all what it's also about they don't want to feel put upon you know Mm -hmm. they don't want to feel overwhelmed or or beaten over the head they also don't want to feel like the music is doing the work for them there's Mm -hmm. been there's been times when david has requested um can we just have no symbols today (laughs) just no no symbols yeah it's like okay okay no symbols like sometimes there'd be swells or you know there'd be punctuations made and he says you know i feel sometimes if we if there's a nice swell at the at the end of or the resolution of something then that symbol swell is maybe doing too much of the work for us mm-hmm. i would also i would like the dancers to to make it that a big emotional event right you know right so interesting interesting things like that and then again now here i go back to the drawing board thinking about all the times i play a symbol swell in a concert you know and, yeah. and like what is what does that symbol swell mean and how many of them do I do and how often? And do they have less meaning every time they show up? Uh, right, right. What if I were to only choose one in the tune instead of three or four? Mm-hmm. You know, the same can be said for crash cymbals or, you know, drum fills, anything. Yeah, you know? yeah. I remember uh, kind of realizing recently um, that in... In a lot of in a lot of my playing situations, particularly if I'm doing something for the first time or playing with someone for the first time, I, I feel the need to fill a lot of space. Or you know, if you know, if we go to the chorus and there's a, a new guitar part and a string patch and and whatever, then I feel the need to also add something to the chorus. Yeah. Um, but I I realized mm-hmm. like you can you can just let other people <laughs> do that. You can let other yeah. instruments. Um, you know, do that. And like you were saying about the dancers, like let them make the swell. Don't, don't do the work for them. Um, that's yep. a cool, that's a cool concept. You know, and back to our idea too, about uh, like you say, if there's a new guitar part, if you're playing with new players, mm-hmm. right. 
um, I feel like a lot of people would have a similar story. I tend to play louder. I tend to play faster. I tend to play more. I tend to do all of these types of things because at that point, it's a, um, it's a muse. It's a, an intellectual endeavor at that point, trying to make the, these songs work. Right. right. Um, and I've, I've found that as the tour goes on or as I play with bands longer, the tempos slow down, the, mm-hmm. the rhythms get more sparse. Um, they get, we can play quieter. We can play with a wider dynamic range. All of these types of things happen. And I, I often wonder as to whether or not this is because I know the music better or is it because I know the people better mm-hmm. at that point yeah. that I'm playing with. Because to play more sparsely, to play with more dynamic, to play um, slower, uh, all of that takes a great amount of trust yep. and respect mm-hmm. and listening in the people that are around you. And that's not necessarily something that you can just offer up upon meeting somebody. Right. Um, and so I think, I think that's the thing that is sometimes glazed over maybe is that, that idea that, that, yeah, it's like now, Oh, now we're more familiar with the music. So now we can play with more nuance and we can play with more musicality and more this and more that. And then sometimes, and I think that that's true to a point, but I also think it's true that you're also more familiar with these human beings that you're making music with. Yeah. And you feel like you can, put your life in their hands a little bit, right, you know, and, right, right. Uh, and, and you can, it's like, I am not going to play a drum fill here going to this chorus, right? Because I really have a feeling that so-and-so needs this moment to express such and such an idea. Yep. And I'm going to offer this trust and this respect and this space. Um, and then there it is, it happens and it becomes to, it happens to be one of the most beautiful vocal moments in the night, or it was a magical bass moment or whatever it was. Yeah. Um, and the only thing that you had to do to make that happen was nothing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. That's, I think you that's know? something that's maybe not talked about enough. Um, cause you know, we, we hear all the time, especially as young drummers, how, you know, you've, you've got to be able to play anything at any moment. You know, you should be able to sight read something and just play it perfectly and do it in one take and, and all that. And yeah. that's, that's definitely true. Those are, those are all useful skills, but um, I think what's lost sometimes is is the idea of you know cultivating a long relationship like that and and exploring you know the same twelve songs with the same four people and going deep on that music yeah. and and with those people and and see what can happen when you do that. Yeah, or, or even take the music out of it completely. Mm-hmm. Just get to know these people. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. um, Jeff Eager. Uh, guitar player who was with me with the TED conference uh, mm-hmm. with Elise this weekend. Um, he and I have played together on his his own material. He also writes his own material. We've we've played that material. Uh, we play together, kind of doing the the giggity gig thing, mm-hmm. you know, playing at bars and clubs and doing covers. Right. Um, we play with Elise. We play with other with other artists as well that that require you know support. Um, and the material is constantly changing. The genres are changing. The material's changing. Um, but it's the, you know, the connection that Jeff and I have doesn't change and that's what makes it work. Mm-hmm. It, the material is neither here nor there. Um, you know, he was the best man at my wedding. Mm-hmm. I'm, uh, I'm a godfather to one of his kids, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, we have, we have long talks about, um, life and music and, uh, fatherhood and travel and, our taxes and mortgages and you know, everything <laughs> right. else in between. Right. And then all of that history comes to the stage and, 
yeah, like playing out with Elise at this this thing this weekend. It was a really interesting ask. They they wanted us to come and play some of these songs, but they wanted drum set, electric guitar, and Elise. Mm-hmm. That was it. Weird. So you want to talk about like space? Yeah. Like, so much space, and and Elise is a she is a masterful vocalist. You know, she's one of those people. The term vocalist, I feel, doesn't get used the way that it should. Mm-hmm. She's a vocalist. She's not a singer. Right. You know, she's right. definitely. She uses her voice and the lyric and you know uh, the the even the way that she physically embodies the music. You know, t- going back to the dance, she she's she is definitely pulling more than her weight mm-hmm. musically. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, like with just you know with her voice, with Jeff's guitar and a drum set. You know, in a huge room, 23 or 2,400 people at this conference, big room, beautiful big theater. And there we were just plucked on this, plunked on this stage to play these songs where the parts are very simple, simple, simple parts, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, And I think that's another thing that we've done lately is we've just made simple synonymous with easy. Right. Um, And so to play these in this beautiful big room to just, you know, man to take out the eights on the hi-hats and just you know just play in the verses like just you know twos and fours with the hats give at least loads of room and then maybe in the choruses we'll feather in some eights or we'll put some eights in the ride and create a bit of dimension and, and things like that but there's just so much space you're so exposed every if any snare drum note or bass drum note was a little ahead or behind or the tone was a little different or if Jeff were to flub a note or anything like that or Elise were to be a little sharp, a little flat, anything, it like rings through, clears a bell. Right. So the the concept of like going out there and holding that space with these two other people that you trust, you know, implicit trust, like mm-hmm. it's just totally there, it's like, you know, right. uh, total, total trust. You know, and same with Elise. She's 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 come to my house. She's she's stayed in our guest room. Right. We've had you know we cook food together. We um, right. So these are this. So yeah, the thing that that made that show work, I feel, and I feel it went very well, and we had a great time, but wasn't necessarily masterful musicianship or you know the idea that I can play a clave with my left foot while I'm playing you know sixteenth notes here and right. phrasing. It was just that I was making music that I believe in with people I love. Right. Yeah. The end. Mm-hmm. That was it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And again, that's another simple concept that is not easy. Yeah. And I mean, that's that's kind of like my, my point is that, you know, there's, there's a lot of fulfillment in... Um, uh, you know, developing your skill to the point where you can walk into a recording session with people you never met and make good music. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, sure. I think what, what really, um, what really makes what we do cool is the experience you, the kind of experience you just described is like making music you believe in with people you love. Um, mm-hmm. that's, that's really a different experience than just walking into the studio and, and slaying something for an hour. Yeah. <laughs> And I'll fully recognize and freely admit that 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 is not always the that's not the um, it's a luxury, right? right to be right. able to to do that, and it's and it certainly it it doesn't happen more often than not. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's lots of times when when I've got to go, and yeah, here's the chart, and here's the click track, and and away we go, like right. you know, a bunch of people. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. <laughs> three, four. See you at the end. You know, <laughs> see you at the end type of thing. Yeah, yeah, and. Um, but I guess what I also try to do is try to 
when we're having those, when I'm in those moments, this is something Jeff and I were talking about after this, after the show this weekend, like trying to, while you're in the moment, like really taking time to look up from the drums and look out and really like, remember how this feels and remember, um, not just because of, you know, not just for the memories or for the, the life experience of it, but also next time I'm in a studio and I'm trying to do what you're saying, having just met these people, you know, having just been given the chart or whatever, the next time I'm trying to make that great feeling, perfect track, first take out of the thing, this is maybe the mental and emotional place I'm going to try to return to, Mm -hmm. to sort of, to sort of center that, the emotion of the track, which I feel as drummers is really our job. I feel like nothing infuses emotion into a, into a track faster than, you know, we call it feel, Mm -hmm. feel, groove, whatever. I mean, it's, it's, I think maybe the word that we're dancing around is emotion. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's just, you're trying to go to an emotional place yeah, and infuse the track with that. And I think that the, the really amazing session drummers are, yeah, the ones whose technique is impeccable and their reading is on point and the, the drums sound fantastic and, and, and on and on and on incredible musical ideas, all of that sort of stuff. Uh, but that they, they can really drill down to the emotional heart of the song and the emotional heart of the part and infuse that into the track that's yeah. i think that's what you know steve gad you know yep there's a, there's a reason he's steve gad like yeah he's he has come up in as like so so many of of our interviews but I, I think he's come up in the last three or four straight that i've done um yeah and it's yeah it's, it just appears to be the the season of gad on on working drummer podcast but you're absolutely right like we've we've talked about how um, you know, the, the reason that so many people love Gad, whether they're drummers or band leaders or whatever, is is the emotion of his playing. Yes, it's the content. Yes, it's the groove. But the emotion and the spirit that he plays with is what makes him great. And yet, every time we go to, you know, YouTube channels or people's Instagram pages or whatever, we're seeing chops, 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 chops. Yeah. You know, every. Everybody pays homage to Steve Gadd or Steve Jordan or, uh, I mean, even guys like Ringo or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, whoever. These, yeah. these drummers that just like throughout, I mean, there's there's drummers that drummers love. Everybody gets this. There's drummers that drummers love. And then it's like you ask 10 people on the street who their favorite drummer is and like 8 out of 10 say Ringo. Right. right? <laughs> like, you know. Drummers love to drummers love to hate on Ringo, and I'm I'm not even going to bother to get into that discussion. Yeah, right? yeah. But the point is, is like the drummers that the drummers that uh, yeah really touch people are the ones that play from an emotional place, and I don't think anyone's going to argue that Steve Gadd doesn't have technical facility or doesn't have musicianship or doesn't have any of these types of things, but he understands that the sort of the, the all the interacts is 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 emotion mm-hmm. you know and he man he drills down to that right quick yeah no matter who he's playing <laughs> with. Like he he plays you know the the thing that i've just always taken away from steve gadd is that he doesn't play the drums he mm-hmm. plays the song yep you know yep and i feel like that's something that i would you know i love watching all these i watch these videos all the time of these guys doing these like incredible things like yeah yeah from outer space you know, it's awesome. It's fun. And kudos to them, man. Like the amount of time and effort and whew, I can't imagine, you know? Yeah. Um, but we, but we, when was the last time that we saw a video with a million likes on Facebook or, or YouTube of, of a drummer talking about like the dissection of the lyric mm-hmm. of the song or, or right. even the title right. of the song? How does the title, how does the title influence what you play? Mm-hmm. You know, 
how does the lyric influence what you play? How does have you had similar experiences to this lyric? Is this drum performance autobiographical or is this a, is this a, is this a fiction? Right. You know. Yeah, yeah. Um, what happens when you play drums from a personal place, a place of personal experience, where you might connect with the lyric as opposed to having to like maybe empathize mm-hmm. and imagine what that might have been like for the songwriter? Yeah. Um, this this speaks to an, another kind of recurring theme on the podcast, which is that as as a professional musician. Um, People, the people you play with and the people don't, uh, the people you play with and the people you play for don't necessarily remember what you play. They remember how you play and how it feels to play with you. Um, yeah, yeah, for and, sure. And ta- like you said, tapping into the emotion of a song and the emotion of, you know, a given situation um, is, is mm-hmm. what makes that stuff memorable. That was interesting. You're actually on another David another David Earl. Oh yeah. Um, sort of. Yeah. You know, so he said, you know, first, first you show up and you start working on something and you figure out what to play. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing that you figure out, you know, uh, it's like you're saying, yeah, the, the, the singers, the artists will never remember what you play. Um, but you know, he says, and after you've sorted out what to play, then we've got to really get down to how you're going to play it, mm-hmm. you know, how, or how you're going to dance it or, you know, how you make your art and they will, they will certainly remember that. And then he says, the third thing that really makes you like sit down and start to scratch your head is why you played it, Mm, you know? And that's, that's, that's the thing that I'm more talking about is like, you, you made those decisions. You, and you know, unless you were given a a, a demo that had the parts all flushed out and you were being asked to reproduce that, then cool. But if you were, you know, there and you're coming up with the parts or even how you imagine them, um, for a performance, say, if it's going to be different than, than the album, it's like, yeah, okay, you know what to play. You know eighth notes, you know quarter notes, you know all that sort of stuff. Great. You even know how to play it to make it feel good. You know, I'm going to gonna lay the hi-hats back a little bit or I'm going to dig into the snare drum a little bit more, you know? But, mm-hmm. man, we do ever ask ourselves why we play the things that we play. Right. You know? And that starts to, again, like drill down to that emotional level. You might have to go to some places, you know, especially if the songs start getting a little bit more aggressive or things start getting a little bit more intense or you have to go to some of those darker places that we all like to to bury away mm-hmm. sometimes and, and not revisit yeah are you um are you prepared to kind of like open up those floodgates in front of two two thousand people and kind of let them read your diary right. a little bit yeah you yeah know? yeah i think and it's just as give them a performance. sorry go ahead well, uh, just give them a performance that's rooted in in your own emotion rather than notes on a page. Right, right. You know, um, I, I think it's just as hard for some people to to go to a, a happy place or a positive place as it is to go mm-hmm. to a dark place because it, you know, be, showing happiness and exuding joy um, requires the same kind of vulnerability that going to a dark oh, place yeah, does. Sure. Um, and it's, it's something that I've, uh, been thinking about in, in my plan for the last few years is like, if you, you know, if you feel good, if something on stage makes you happy, like show it, but you know, my wife kind of got on me. She was like, you don't, you don't look happy when you play, like you look kind of pissed off sometimes. Right. Um, yeah. and even though I I'm having a great time, I am happy, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't showing it. So, um, I, mm-hmm. I just started, you know, smiling more, laughing more, like, yelling at people like yeah man or just showing something whether it's going to a dark place or a happy place yeah and and you know that would be an interesting uh experiment would be to to um 
to like to film and record and uh, the same band playing the same set on a couple different nights yeah um and then you know or, or even over the course of a tour say and then go and look at the tape and like, try to find out if we can find a night when the band was particularly expressive physically mm-hmm. right and, and particularly you know, smiles and connected and and find a night where they are perhaps a little bit more stoic and then play those two recordings and actually find out if we can actually hear the smiles and yeah. hear the interaction and hear the, like, does, does that sort of, cause we talk, you know, again, we say those things all the time. Oh, music is a two way street. It's a give and a take. It's a conversation. It's mm-hmm. a, this, it's a, that, like we, we say those things all the time and you're going to get a much more exciting conversation. If you're smiling at the person that you're talking to, or if the person that you're, you're, you're speaking with feels that they're enjoying the conversation. Uh, you know, that's just going to have these positive, this positive feedback loop. Right. And yet, yeah, we get on stage and people turn into statues, right? Yeah. It's like, I'm having a conversation. I am, <laughs> I'm supporting. I'm the bass player. <laughs> yeah, I'm loving every second of this. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. That could be a fun experiment. And, yeah. and like you're saying, yeah. The happiness is a tricky place. I think a lot of singers often, or songwriters often talk about the idea of having a hard time writing happy songs. Mm-hmm. Right. They, they have a hard time writing in major keys. They have a hard time writing happy experiences. It's easier to write about heartbreak or loss or this or that. But yeah, to, to sing in a major key and you know, they're, oh, they're like, oh, it's going to sound cheesy. It's going to sound, you know, right. it's going to sound whatever. It's like to be taken seriously as an artist. Right. Uh, right. We have to, to go to those dark brooding places um and whether or not we go there authentically is the question that i often wonder it's yeah like, you know you can and so there's an awful lot of dark brooding stuff that right um, right you put on your black skinny <laughs> jeans and uh and grimace into the microphone and uh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when you kind of make sure that your voice breaks a little bit when you go to like you know the core right. so that you can really show people that you're moving and make sure that you're appropriately hunched over the piano and so much pain right now (laughs) so much pain so much emotion Mm. so much artistic seriousness right right as opposed we were talking about this the other day um as opposed to like say um like sometimes it snows in april by prince Mm -hmm. um which i think is maybe the saddest song ever written Mm -hmm. you know um you know, I think there are examples of how you can you can express pain and you can express hurt and you can yeah you can use all devices and I don't think anybody would especially coming up on the anniversary of losing Prince and and, and the snowstorm in the middle of April right like, I don't man I have a hard time getting through that song without the tears rolling down yeah, you know yeah. uh, so I think there's there's that barometer there when that emotion is is real. So where do you go to find a treasure trove of information about vintage drums, custom drums, and legendary drummers? NotSoModernDrummer.com Since 1988, NotSoModernDrummer is an institution dedicated to researching and documenting the history of modern drums, the art of drum building, and the legendary drummers who play them. The writers and contributors are some of the top vintage and custom drum experts from around the world. Not So Modern Drummer serves as an online gathering place and marketplace for the worldwide community of drummers who buy and sell, collect, preserve, and play these instruments. It also hosts drum-related events that are attended by drummers from all over the world. This website is easy and fun to explore, and the monthly digital magazine subscription is free. So check out NotSoModernDrummer.com. Am I correct in assuming that that most of your uh, career, aside from the dance thing, which is in Guelph where you live, 
Um, most of your career is kind of built around what's going on in Toronto, correct? Um, I would say that's about uh, maybe 75%. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. I think that there's also this assumption that Toronto is kind of the center of the universe in Canada, mm-hmm. you know, um, which is a fair assumption. It's a big town and uh, there's a lot going on there for sure. Mm-hmm. But yeah, about 75% of what I do takes me to Toronto or, or with artists from Toronto. Right. Um, but, uh, and, and I think that that's also part of the reason that I live outside of Toronto, like uh, by, by design kind of getting just outside of the city. There's a lot of other experiences in Canada that, um, that happened outside of the city, but uh, I lived there for a few years when I was studying. I went to Humber College in Toronto, mm-hmm. studied drums there for a while, and um, I just I just started noticing that uh, I'm not from Toronto. I'm from uh, a town called Elmira, Ontario. Mm-hmm. That's uh, a little further out even than Guelph. But uh, yeah, when I was living in Toronto, I realized that I never played outside of Toronto less than when I was living in Toronto. Hmm. Um, just because it's it's a big city, yeah. you know, and you, yeah, yeah. you probably talk to anybody from LA or New York. Um, Toronto, I don't I think people don't understand the size of Toronto. Uh, I think I, ch- I checked a while ago. We, we could check again. But Toronto was the fourth or fifth largest city in North America. Um, when I checked a little while ago. Wow. Um, so there's like New York, LA, Chicago, Houston, and I believe Toronto. Yeah. Yeah. You know, wow. Like it's up there. So think of like big cities like Atlanta, right? You know, Cincinnati, Cleveland, Miami, um, you know, like cities that you think of as big cities, Seattle, um, Toronto's larger, right? Like it's, it's right. a big, big city, yeah. <laughs> you know, and kind of like New York, it also has, Toronto has kind of its, its boroughs, I mm-hmm. guess. Like there's like the, the Toronto and then the GA, like Sasaga and, uh, Etobicoke and, um, uh, Scarborough and, you know, and, and so on. So, when you live in Toronto, it's very easy to have a career that just doesn't take you outside of Toronto. You can, you know, probably like, probably like New York, probably even Manhattan, right. you can probably be working all the time and like never leave the Island yeah. because there's just so many places and musicians and whatever. And, and it was great. I, I loved living there and I, I made some great connections with people that, that I still maintain to this day. But it also, I felt that it started to maybe, uh, homogenize me a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, like things started to kind of, the, the, the lens started to get a little too focused. Like, uh, everything started to become a little bit too, too day in, day out. Like, right. um, and you kind of you know, like got, you end up, for, for better or for worse, you got in, in kind of stuck in a cycle of doing the same types of gigs, the same kind of music, the same circle of people. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it was wonderful. Those were wonderful gigs and wonderful people and wonderful songs. Right. There's no, it was, it was great. Right. Right. Uh, It was, it was, it was great and it was, it was fun and it was exciting. Um, and it was very, very comfortable. Yes. (laughs) You know? Yeah. And I think that that's, I think that's where it can kind of sometimes, it can sometimes go sideways. Uh, if things get a little too comfortable, uh, for a little too long because, you know, adversity is usually what breeds change. Mm -hmm. As soon as people, I don't have any gigs or, I'm not enjoying the gigs that I'm doing or I'm, I need to, Oh, I'm not happy. I'm not happy. That's usually what, that's usually what nudges us on a different sort of trajectory. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it's very difficult when things are, are, are great. Um, but uh, yeah, living in Toronto and then I got the opportunity to start doing a lot of international touring with an artist. Uh, her name was Ember Swift. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, with Ember, um, 
Amber was really the one that just showed me that how big the world is. It's a big place. I was yeah. like 21, 22. And, um, man, we, we did a lot. I toured all over Canada, the States, many, many tours to Australia. Um, yeah, yeah, little, little islands in the South Pacific, <laughs> you know? Um, and that, that was all playing her original music. Um, she had released uh, 10 independent albums and a DVD wow. project. And uh, this was all, all independent. There was a time when we were touring as an independent artist, artists, and we had uh, two or three people, um, back home at an office in Toronto. Like she had employees, um, working full time as, um, you know, kind of home management. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. Ember, Ember really did lay the, lay the blueprint for how to be an independent artist in Canada during that time. Mm-hmm. Um, long before being an indie artist was cool. This right. was back when it was still all about trying to get like A and R guys to come to your show and right. sign a record deal and, and so on. Right. So anyways, I, I learned a lot with Ember. And when I came home, uh, I just kind of wanted to continue having those experiences of, um, just kind of getting out, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what living in Guelph kind of affords me, I guess, is that I can kind of live on the periphery of that Toronto scene. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there's, you know, I'm in the city all the time. I'm still good to play with those great musicians. And I, again, many of them who are great friends and, and I would, I would really miss it if I, if I couldn't do that, but it's that kind of magical 25%, um, people like Jason Russell, like I would have never met Jason right. if I was still living in Toronto. Mm-hmm. And there's another guy that I would call a brother, you know? Yeah. And I would, I would, I would, uh, I would be sad or the modern dance thing, you know, is another thing that would never have happened. Right. Um, yeah. So it's, it's that, that, that magical 25%, I think that is important to me that yeah. I, I like to preserve. Right. And I would imagine your, your cost of living and your kind of, uh, uh, day to day quality of living oh, yeah. is, <laughs> is better. Oh yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, um, my wife and I bought a house and, and, um, you know, so for a modern dancer and a musician to be able to like own a home, yeah. um, that's just, that's, that's not, uh, well, I, I can't say it's not a reality, but it certainly wouldn't have been our reality living right. in, living in Toronto, mm-hmm. you know? And so Guelph was a place that made that possible. Um, and of course, living here already for a decade prior to that, we had already sort of put down roots here and, mm-hmm. um, we knew the community, we knew the people, um, and geographically it's wonderful. I can be to a gig in Toronto, uh, in about an, an hour and 10 minutes mm-hmm. and coming home, uh, when traffic is light after a gig, say coming home between like, you know, 10 o'clock at night or one o'clock in the morning, I'll be home in 45 minutes, 50 minutes. Right. Uh, so it's, it's just not that far really. Yeah. Um, and it's 45 minutes to the airport. So getting in and out for touring and all that kind of stuff is a piece of cake. There's places you can live in Toronto that takes you longer than 45 minutes to get to the airport. So, right. Um, the airport happens to be on the Guelph side of Toronto. Good. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And, yeah our, our family is situated out here. So it's close to family and uh, it's just, it's just a good fit for me. Yeah. You know? And I'm sure that there's, there's people who would, would need a different fit, but for me, it's a good one. Right. Right. <laughs> And speaking of family, from the looks of Instagram, you're you're about to be a dad. Is that is that the case? I am. Yeah. Well done. Yeah. I, I haven't posted too much about it, but uh, it's only been... <laughs> there was a, there was a picture yeah, or two yeah. there. I was like, oh, that's happening. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. so uh, this is going to be your first. This is this is our first child. Yeah. Wow. So uh, let's. Yeah. How's I'm pretty that, excited. How's that going to uh, <laughs> change your life as a, as a drummer as a musician? Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm thrilled. Um, I can't wait. Mm-hmm. 
uh, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, again, I'm really fortunate that I have guys in my life like Jay, like Jeff, um, you know, Jeff and Jason, both, both mm-hmm. are dads. Uh, Jeff's got three daughters. Jeff's, uh, Jeff has three daughters. Jason has one. Um, and you know, there's no end of musicians in my life that have kids, but I happen to be very close to those two guys. And, um, you know, I've seen how they manage to find a nice, like anyone else. It's a, it's a life work balance that yeah. needs to be struck. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they have done it masterfully. And, uh, of course they also have super supportive partners that mm-hmm. help them and, uh, and have their back, but, uh, it's a two way street, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I definitely have, um, fantastic examples in my life of, of, of making it work. Right. Uh, not just making it work, but, but, you know, making it work wonderfully. Right. Yeah. Um, and our life is already pretty unconventional, <laughs> right? So, you know? Um, so, uh, like we, we're, we're heading to France in August. Nice. Um, we're going to be at a, a dance and music festival there. So, um, my wife and I are, are both, Georgia and I are both, uh, heading to France in August with a three month old. Um, <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, and I've, I've asked a bunch of my friends, I'm like, are we crazy for even considering this? Like, is this a suicide mission? Like, <laughs> uh, well, I'll, I'll said, ask oh, you man, in September. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll see. But they all they all say that you know traveling with a three month old, they say you know do it, do it until they can speak and walk and mm. and right. and have have needs further than what you can provide in your immediate vicinity. You know, mm-hmm. they have toys and books and all sorts of stuff that needs to come with them. Uh, but yeah, so we're we're looking forward to it. But yeah, it's it's already an unconventional life. So right, and um, I think for would, for musicians and and artists and creative people in general, like if if you have kids it's it's kind of a choice to just um keep doing what you do and make the kids a part of it and figure out a way to bring both along you know um yeah i've, oh, I've yeah. seen I've, I've known some musicians who you know went went into family life and um their their creative life either just kind of ended or or took a back seat for a while and i've known other musicians who mm-hmm. like their you know their music creative life took a step up after they had kids, you know, yeah. they, they made a choice to just yeah. bring everything along together. Yep, for sure. I, uh, I toured for a long time with a, a Canadian artist named Kelly Lee Evans. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we were on the road with her three children and wow. her husband. And, um, and it was, it was lovely. Yeah. Like it was, it was, it was really great. Kids have a wonderful way of, um, of aligning your perspective, <laughs> you know? Uh, I'm sure. Yeah. Like you, you really, yeah, it. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure how to. I mean, the world is an incredible place. Yeah. It's a really wonderful place. Yeah, and we often take we often take a lot for granted, but you can't do that when you have a kid beside you, like say a five year old on the road, and they are just blown away by whatever. Right. You know. Right. The ocean. <laughs> the first time. <laughs> You know, like, oh, my God, wow, like, wow. Yeah. Uh, and it actually makes you, like, step back and, you know, like, like, yeah, like, yeah, wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is incredible. Yeah. You know? Totally. Um, and so having Kelly Lee's kids along for the ride um, every day was another, like, wow, this is amazing. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Chocolate cake is incredible. <laughs> <laughs> Every, everything is like blowing my mind right now. Right. So yeah. I look I look forward to that as well with my with my child to sort of show them 
to show them how wonderful this uh, this world and this this life and music and and these people yeah um, and these experiences are I'm excited about that I, I agree with what you said about um, just kind of kid kids are good for perspective because um, my, my <laughs> wife and I don't have kids and I, I don't think we're going to but um, like we lived in LA for five years. I played at Disneyland for a good chunk of that time. And, you know, as, right. as an employee at Disneyland, it's really easy to get dark on Disneyland and just right. look around and be like, this right. is all fake. This is a giant corporation, uh, you know, yeah. and then her five-year-old nephew came to visit the whole family came and we took, we took the <laughs> right. whole family to Disneyland for the kid's fifth birthday and seeing Disneyland through the eyes of a five-year-old. I was like, Oh, this is amazing. This is <laughs> incredible. It's, <laughs> Yeah, you know, totally. um, and recently yeah. I've been, I've been, yeah. uh, I started teaching drum lessons again recently. Um, and I hadn't done it for like seven or eight years. Uh, and where I'm at in my life now, like, I feel like I'm much more open to just kind of experiencing a song through like the eyes of a, of a nine year old who's hearing it for the first time and trying to figure out this drum part and learning, learning what they like about the song and what they like about the drums. Um, is mm -hmm. like really kind of reconnecting me with just what you said, like the basic joy of like, this is amazing. <laughs> you know, it's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like, we, like artists are the original mag magicians, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, like it, it, it's like, this is stuff that, that we, we are so fortunate to be able to create for people is, is nothing short of, of magic mm -hmm. really, whether it's dance or music or, you know, poetry, whatever, visual arts, whatever it is that you do. Um, I mean, to someone who doesn't do it, it's magic. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah. trying to constantly re remind myself of that, you know, especially when things are you know, frustrating or difficult, you know, um, yeah, just remind myself of, of, of yeah, that there's, there's a, a real wonder to this life yeah. in, in music mm -hmm. and art that um, we're lucky to get a, a, a peek behind the curtain at. And I suppose like, like anything, when you peek behind the curtain, uh, some of it is fascinating and some of it is a little, there's a little bit of uh, disillusionment that happens there mm -hmm. too. So it's tricky to, tricky to keep those things all balanced. Prince, number one, it'll be a Prince record mm -hmm. and it'll either be Sign of the Times or Dirty Mind. Um, another one that might be in there would be, uh, Fleetwood Max rumors, hmm. <laughs> just amazing. The ones that are coming to mind, uh, <laughs> trying to, just trying to think of records that have just been there yeah. forever. You know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, so let's say side of the times by Prince, uh, rumors by Fleetwood Mac, what's going on by Marvin Gaye. Hmm. Um, um, Octoon baby, uh, U2. Wow. Um, and uh, maybe another one that has always been there. Ta -ta 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 -ta. Oh, Stevie Wonder, Inner Visions. Yeah. Wow, that was quick. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah. with those with those records, like it's it's probably different for each one of them. But what what is it about those records? The drumming, the production, the songwriting. I mean, it's kind of a combination of all of that for all of those records. But um, what what jumps yeah. out to you with some of those? Um, uh, Octoon Baby. I was just in grade. I was in grade nine, hmm. and I had just started started playing the drums. And um, 
that was one of the first records that I put on and played along to. Yeah. Um, like again, for me, it's not the, it's not the production. It's not the songwriting. It's not anything. It's all of the, it was what was happening to me personally in my life when all of those records showed up. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, um, Fleetwood Max rumors. Um, many of my grandparents were uh, passing away from cancer mm. <laughs> at that time in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, just for whatever reason that, that album was, uh, was being played quite a bit uh, around the house, and uh, and that was just the soundtrack of, of that time. Mm-hmm. Um, that's also an album about relationships ending, people's yeah. lives changing, yeah. people moving in different directions. Um, so uh, that was that was a, a powerful one. Um, uh, Sign of the times. Um, yeah, uh, when I had first moved to Toronto. Uh, and started playing with some of the people that I uh, was speaking about earlier. I, I don't think I mentioned them by name, but people like uh, Chris Rouse, Bailey Alexander, Wade Brown, Milos Angelov, um, some of those those people that I uh, I still play with quite a bit. Um, that was one of the first records that Bailey Alexander handed me and said, "Learn this thing front to back. This will mm-hmm. teach you everything you need to know about um, the funk." Right. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, he gave me that record. He gave me Parliament's Motor Booty Affair. He gave me the live Gap Band album. Hmm. And he gave me What Time Is It By The Time. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think James Brown's Star Time box set. He's like, this is your homework for the next six months. Wow. Like, you know. Um, and so, so Sign of the Times reminds me of, um, of just moving to Toronto and meeting all those guys. And uh, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, What's going on was the first album that I really started to notice the confluence of activism and art mm-hmm. uh, in, in in music. Yeah, uh, when I was touring touring with Ember Swift, uh, she was very vocal about uh, political, social, environmental concepts, um, all of which appear on Marvin's "What's Going On" album. You know, right? Uh, and, uh, and and it was so Marvin so perfectly weaved those concepts together. He managed to make an album that didn't necessarily preach at people um he managed to make music that was listenable danceable accessible with content that was poignant and 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 that people needed needed to hear at the time and probably still do need to hear right right (laughs) um so yeah it's it's those types of things um that make those albums stand out for me uh paul simon's graceland might be in there as well Yeah, that was on Um, my list for sure yeah. yeah, you know, uh, yeah, just trying to think of albums that, uh, you know, when I left my parents' house and when I went to college and when I got my first crappy apartment downtown and when I, you know, moved cities and when I finally bought this house, what were the albums that were in the boxes that were being moved that are consistent to all of those places? And right. there's only a few of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Michelle's Peace Beyond Passion hmm. would be another one. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, but, so for me, that's the that's the magic of those albums is yeah. the memories and the ideas they trigger. Right. I, and I like, I like the idea of kind of organizing your list around, around that principle. Um, because I think, I think to an extent, um, everybody that I've asked this question, uh, does that. Um, mm-hmm. but I think, you know, they've, they've talked more about 
who was the drummer on that record and how did that drumming blow their mind yeah. and there was the production and and you know um and that's all that's all great those are perfectly valid reasons to put an album on your mm-hmm. list but um, for sure no, nobody's i don't think anybody's gone as as deep as you just did in terms of like what was going on in your life at the time that you were into mm-hmm. that record and it goes back to to what you were saying about you know just being able to access a song emotionally as a performer um, you know, mm-hmm. like putting yourself in in that kind of vulnerable space um, to in order in order yeah. to to express it to an audience. Um, I think yeah. knowing knowing why those records meant so much to you uh, is is a good tool for for accessing that space. Yeah, yeah. I remember Billy <laughs> Billy Alexander, great keyboard player from Toronto, mm-hmm. who who's who's a mentor of mine. <laughs> I remember him. Um, mentioning once that you will love for the rest of your life whatever music you were listening to when you started having sex (laughs) like no matter how absurd the artist or album that you happen to be into at the time whatever you were into you're into rick astley you're into like whatever yep it's like you will love that you will love that until the day you die absolutely (laughs) true absolutely who is who's that artist for you um, that would probably be the, uh, that'd probably, that'd be around the, uh, U2 Zuropa period. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I, I still listen to Z- <laughs> Billy's, Billy's, uh, theory rings true. It, it rings true for <laughs> me too, because it's Tom Waits. I was like heavy into Tom <laughs> right. Waits and still am. It's, you know, uh, right. yeah. <laughs> and I will your defend it to the death, man. You put on that, t- your wife knows when you put on the Tom Waits, <laughs> man. <laughs> Yeah. She it's funny cuz like she actually does not like Tom Waits and and uh you know I I understand why a lot of people yeah. don't like Tom Waits but you know she just she lets me have it she lets me love Tom Waits and uh right. I don't I don't expect her to to get on board with it so <laughs> There you go. Yeah. And and you know what you're saying too about the the drummers on the records and all that sort of stuff that is something that I just struggle with I, I was so glad that I you didn't ask me to list my top 5 favorite drummers or Right. Because uh, I have such a hard time with that. Not necessarily, not necessarily because there's so many of them, but because I have a really hard time uh, listing favorite drummers, especially on albums, things like that. I find, and this is another kind of working theory of mine, I feel that as drummers, we should be able to list our top five, top ten favorite bassists mm. much quicker than we should be able to list our top five or ten favorite drummers. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Because when we're playing... Like I'm dialed into the bass. I've trained myself over years and years and years to listen to the bass probably first and foremost, mm-hmm. right? My ears are dialed in to go to the bass. That's right. what we play to as drummers. I'm not listening to the drums. If I'm listening to myself, there's a problem. Right, you know? right. And so when I when I put on a record or when I get in my car and I drive home, it's not like something all of a sudden shifts in my mind where now I'm listening to the drums. Like I'm still listening to the bass, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. And so as a as a result, I feel like I can rattle off my favorite bass players a lot quicker than I can rattle off a bunch of drummers because the truth of the matter is often when I have to learn cover songs, even songs that I absolutely love, like from any of those records that I was telling you about, I would be hard pressed to know exactly what the drum part is on particular songs, but I could probably sing you the bass line. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. um, because that's where my that's where my ear goes to first. Um, and so my you know this is a working theory of mine that 
the, the biggest fan of bass players are probably drummers and the biggest fan of drummers are probably bass players. So yeah. don't ask drummers about drummers. Ask them about bass players. Right. And yeah, yeah. That's, that's so interesting, man, because like, especially in the context of when, when you're playing, I think, you know, so many, so many drummers are focused on their own sound. Um, and like, it's, you know, it's, especially if you're really into a certain drummer, like if you're really into Gad at a given time, then you're yeah. listening to yourself play thinking like, how can I sound like Gad? I don't sound enough like Gad when <laughs> right. what you should be doing is like you said, listening to the bass player and figuring out how you sound with the bass player, not how Gad would sound with that bass player and how you can sound like Gad, like figure out yeah, your yeah. hands and your sound and put it with that bass player's sound. Um, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You know, like, yeah. Oh yeah. I think that listening to the drums, you obviously need to be able to hear the drums. Like you right. want to have a good mix and, and all that kind of stuff, but there's a difference between hearing the drums and listening to the drums mm-hmm. while you're playing them. Right. <laughs> you know, like I feel like that's, that's a dangerous, dangerous place to be. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, yeah. and, uh, it's funny yeah. that you talked cool. about like being able, you, like you would know the bass part to a song and not necessarily know the drum part. I'm I'm that way with lyrics. Like if I need to learn a mm-hmm. bunch of songs, the the first thing I gravitate to is is the lyrics. And and somebody will, you know, I'll be on some bar band gig or whatever, and they'll be like, you know, such and such a song, and I'll be like, oh yeah, I love that song. And about halfway through it, I realize like I'm not a hundred percent positive what this drum part is supposed to be. Um, yeah, I know these sure. lyrics front to back, but. Um, yeah, it's interesting. And I feel like that's that's the punchline to everything that we've been talking about. Is, is I would actually suggest that the more you love the song, the less you probably know of the drum part. Mm-hmm. Because you've probably spent your whole life listening to the song. If the song is truly masterful and it's been you know, presented and recorded and written and arranged and all of those things come together, mm-hmm. then you probably shouldn't notice the drums. Yep. You know, you should probably you should probably listen to the song. Yeah. <laughs> like that's the, that's the whole point. Yeah. And I find that, that, that for me, that, that gets me on gigs all the time when people just call songs and call the song off of, um, you know, uh, Graceland. I had to play, you can call me Al mm-hmm. about a month ago. And I had no idea. I, I knew that there was a crazy, awesome snare drum sound. Right. You know? <laughs> like that was, you know, I knew, I knew that that was in there somewhere, but it's like, if you had to, if I had to, if you asked me to sketch out kind of a rough outline of that drum pattern, no idea. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's, um, it's stupidly simple, you know, it's not super complex, but it just is woven yeah. into the fabric of that song so well. That, it's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I, I've heard that song 10 million times Yeah. and I love it and I can sing along to it and yep. I dance to it and I'll have a great time not a clue what the drums were doing in that song. I had to, I had to like sit down and be like, Oh wow. Really? <laughs> yeah. Cool. I've had that experience so many times, like where you have to sit down and learn the part and you're like, really? That's it. That's oh wow. Okay. That's, <laughs> and maybe that's why it works so well. Right. Cause right. it just hit, it just was hiding in plain sight the whole time. Yeah. Um, you know, and there's absolutely nothing that was played on that record. Um, or, or that particular song that you notice maybe outside of that huge, you know, reverb drenched, you know, massive snare drum right, type thing right. that gets put in there. Yeah. Um, but you would probably notice right away if it was gone. Yeah. You know, like that's, that's the, I feel like that's the, that's the Holy grail of incredible drum performances is right. to support, support the song so perfectly to the point that nobody ever notices what you're doing, but they notice the second that it's gone. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, man, it was it was great talking with you. It was uh, great to meet you on screen, and uh, yeah, thank you, likewise. thank you for introducing us to to Toronto and to your your world over there. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Yeah, absolutely. Best of luck with uh, with the the kid and the trip to Paris with the kid. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm for sure. sure. We'll, sure we'll do a follow-up on that. Right, you'll keep us posted on Instagram, I'm sure. Yeah, man, for sure. <laughs> All right. Be well, man. All right. Thank, Thank you. You too. Thanks again to Adam for that talk. I hope you got as much out of it as I did. Uh, it really reminded me that our number one job as musicians and artists is to make people feel something. So play accordingly. I want to let you know that I've got some East Coast dates coming up with Ruby Bell and the Soulphonics. So if you're in North Carolina, Pennsylvania, New York City, upstate New York, or Washington, D.C., go to rubybellandthesoulphonics.com for details. I'd love to see some of you out there in the world. Matt Krause is back with you next week. Thanks, as always, to Mike Jackson for his technical assistance. And thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.